The talk this evening is on original blessing. When we think of the spiritual life and spiritual practice, we often think in terms of the spiritual life being a movement and a development, and sometimes a flight from somewhere and something to somewhere and something. Spiritual life and practice is frequently seen as being a stepping stone to something loftier, to something higher than where we are now. And we've all read different stories and heard different people's experiences and we've all heard about the Bodhi tree and these different momentous events in the lives of different spiritual people. And so we often have these kind of glorious images of the spiritual destination that we're fleeing towards or traveling towards. We often have images of a, of a life in the future, possibly even in a future life, where there'll be a greatness of joy and wonder, where there'll be a, an end to pain and to struggle, where there'll perhaps be, hopefully, a kind of blissful enlightenment, where there'll be, obviously, an abundance, if not an overabundance, of harmony, of compassion, and of wisdom. And we not only have images of where we'd like to arrive at, we frequently also have images of the kind of person we will be when we enter this heavenly realm, so to speak. We often have then expectations or images that we will certainly be worthy of this arrival, that in order to arrive at this destination, we ourselves will, of course, probably have progressed to a point where we inwardly are overflowing with wisdom and compassion, where we're filled with love and understanding, where we've become perhaps pure and worthy of liberation. And in being pure, there'll never be a trace, of course, of anger or resentment arising. There won't be a mark within ourselves of grasping, of pride or of greed that we will have become a kind of spiritual paragon, a, a model of spiritual excellence. Of course, the other side of thinking in terms of this movement or flight towards excellence is equally the idea of moving away from or fleeing from that which is labeled as being impure or inferior or imperfect. And these two ideas, seemingly, must always go together. The flight to somewhere, the flight to become someone, is inevitably accompanied by the belief 
of the need to flee from somewhere and from someone. And that place, of course, that we then feel that we're fleeing from is where we are right now. And that person that we feel that we must also move away from to arrive at this destination is that person who we are now. To arrive at spiritual excellence in this belief system, it seems that transcendence is the key. That transcendence or overcoming is a very major ingredient in this movement. And it's all too easy for us to name and to label the obstacles that seem to hinder us in this movement that we become intent upon. It's easy to name and label the, the obstacles and the hindrances that seem to prevent us from arriving at our destination. When we look inwardly, when we look at our lives, when we look at our minds and look within our hearts, we are often just not terribly pleased with what we see. When we see traces or sometimes strong waves of greed or anger, we at times despair. You know, how will I ever get anywhere when I'm like this? Sometimes we feel despairing at the amount or our capacity for confusion. There are times when we are saddened by the kind of chasm of separateness that seems to exist between us and others, between inner and outer, between us and them. And there are times too when we feel really actually horrified by the movements of judgment and resentment that can arise within us. When we see this inwardly, it's very easy for us to conclude that these are the things we must change. These become our projects. These are the things we must alter in some way, that these are the imperfections, our own personal imperfections and impurities that we need to get away from, get rid of, flee from, or alter, or modify in some way in order for us to become worthy, in order for us to become spiritual, at the very least in order for us to become acceptable, to become the kind of person that we feel we should be. We flee not only from someone, but also from somewhere. When we also not only look inwardly, but when we are also very touched and see the touched by and see the world around us, we are often too very grieved by the kind of oppression and injustice that is the diet, the daily diet of too many people. We're often grieved by the conflict and the hatred that exists in our world, and saddened by the degree of chaos and greed and confusion that can permeate really every level of our world, and it can all seem so hopeless. There's no possibility of change out there, we think. 
There will always be this. And then we conclude that that which is sacred, that which is worth feeling reverence for, must lie somewhere else. That it must lie somewhere separate and apart from where we are now. We find ourselves experiencing a variety of reactions to what we see in the world, aversion and fear, but often we find really little that it seems worth giving reverence to. And we conclude that we must look somewhere else, some place, some state, some dimension, some destination for the peace and the wisdom that we seek for. This belief easily becomes the kind of underlying statement of our own journeys. This belief is intrinsic to too many people's journeys. The flight from somewhere and the flight to something. And actually we do all inherit a whole wealth of religious teaching and history that very much seems to support and to reinforce this kind of belief system that we learn to create within ourselves. I'd just like to read you a few statements from a few very august people. From Milarepa we hear, all worldly pursuits have but the one unavoidable and inevitable end, which is sorrow. Acquisitions end in dispersion, buildings in destruction, meetings in separation, and birth in death. It's a heartening thought. <laughs> From Sri Ramakrishna we hear, he who contemplates the lotus feet of God looks on even the most beautiful woman as mere ash from the cremation ground. <laughs> and from a well-known sage in the Christian tradition, we are told, before anyone can find God, all your likings and dislikings have to be utterly changed. All things must become as bitter to thee as their enjoyment was sweet unto thee. And from Alice Bailey, we hear, truth lies beyond the world of feeling altogether, unaffected by it, and can only be sensed in its purity when feeling is transcended. Rather punchy lines. <laughs> when we hear them, initially our gut reaction is one, well, you know, these people have got to be wrong. You know, they must be wrong, this has to be off, you know, these are taken out of context, there must be some other explanation. They're not really talking about transcending everything, surely. And often we have a kind of aversion even to listening to those kind of statements. But actually after those first thoughts about this being entirely wrong, we often have other thoughts that follow that are a little bit concerned, well, what if they're right? <laughs> I mean, what if they're actually right? What if that's what we have to do? 
What if we really, you know, in order to be free, what if we really just have to disconnect, to divorce ourselves from everything, to drop everything, to find the nearest monastery, to relinquish everything that is sweet to us? The underlying statement, certainly, in those messages and exhortations that we so often inherit and absorb in our lives, is that it is indeed necessary to go beyond, to transcend, to go beyond where and who we are. It's a very um, oft-repeated Buddhist chant of gate, gate, parasamagate. You know that you've gone, gone, gone to the beyond. It seems that perhaps it's necessary that separation and disconnection is required of us if we are really to be free from pain and division and if we're really to understand what is true and what is real. These messages combined with our own perceptions and the dualisms that we create within our own minds and hearts between inner and outer and good and bad and right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable. The combination of these two tell us, give to us a message that heaven is separate from earth, that the spiritual is something separate from the worldly, that the sacred lies apart from the mundane, and when we listen to these messages and to our own perceptions, we then do see the spiritual path as a stepping stone to something else, as a flight to somewhere else, to become somewhere else, to become someone else. To me, this kind of belief system, believing in this flight, is one of the greatest spiritual mistakes we can ever engage in. And it is one of the greatest spiritual tragedies we can ever initiate within ourselves. It is a tragedy when it is unconscious. It is even a greater tragedy when it is conscious. Certainly at the risk of being heretical or contradicting these very august spiritual authorities, I feel that what is actually being delivered here is a very distorted message of original sin. And what is not being delivered is a message of original blessing. And that when we are not acutely and directly connected with a message and an understanding of original blessing, then our spiritual lives, our aspirations, our inner lives, our outer lives are endlessly shadowed by fragmentation, by division, and by the pain that follows. It seems to me that when we are burdened by a distorted message of original sin, that it is my fault, rather than connected with original blessing, that we are some way destined to endlessly perpetuate the sorrow and the very division that we find ourselves trying to flee from. We don't have to look very far to receive the message of original blessing. 
it seems just that we are more prone to believe in a distorted message of original sin. In all times and in all traditions, in the past and in the present, within the teaching of every great mystic, of every tradition, of everyone who travels this path, there is shared one very fundamental discovery and awakening. The words that I use to describe this discovery and this awakening differ. Spoken of oneness, of truth, of reality, of enlightenment, of God, of liberation. But the message beneath these words is always the same. And that message is that we are really singularly blessed. That there is an infinite, an unconditioned reality that underlies the world of difference and appearance. That there is an undivisible, an unshakable oneness or truth that underlies the world of separation, of appearance and division. And that this truth or this awakening and this understanding is not separate or apart from ourselves or from anything. And to discover this awakening, to awaken to this understanding, is to discover the essence of all being, the suchness of all things. And that to awaken to this reality, this understanding, is to awaken to a profound liberation and a profound joy, a profound compassion and peace. The message, too, is that this awakening is not dependent upon anything. It is not something that can be gained. It is not something that can be possessed. The Buddha once said, I gained absolutely nothing from complete, perfect, unexcelled enlightenment. And then he went on to describe in endless detail the wonder and the joy and the richness of liberation. The message, too, is that this awakening does not lie separate from anything, from anywhere. It's not in another dimension. It's not in another time or place. And this awakening is never spoken of in depressive language or negative terms. People don't speak about the sorrow of liberation <laughs> or the grief of enlightenment or the heaviness of being awake. The words that are only ever used to attempt to describe something which is not describable are words of love, of wonder, of joy, of compassion, of openness. The words may be limited, but what is always pointed out again and again that this understanding is not beyond accessibility, that it is a revolution in consciousness, a revolution in consciousness which will organically, radically revolutionize our lives. And that the greatness of compassion, of service, of generosity, of forgiveness, 
all have their home within this understanding of oneness, within this understanding of what it means to be awake. Awakening is imminent, not separate, but always present. And just to balance, yeah, there are quotes I used. Thomas Martin said, we have what we seek. It is there all the time. It will make itself known to us. The Buddha spoke of the suchness in the stones of a river, in the tears of a child, and the laughter of a joyous heart. Just as William Blake said so wonderfully, to see the world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And as Julian of Norwich said, the fullness of joy is to behold God in everything. What we hear in these statements is the imminence of truth, which is the core of all spiritual paths, that it's not a product of anything. It is not a product of striving or struggling. It's not a product of transcending. And certainly, it is not dependent upon us making ourselves perfect. Rather, it is learning to open our eyes to what is already with us. These statements and the core of all spiritual life is a message of our own potential and our own possibility. They speak of the greatness of human possibilities, the possibilities to be awake, the possibility to live with a fullness of compassion and wisdom and sensitivity in this world. And this potential is not just the territory of holy or saintly people. It is not just a Gandhi who can forgive. It's not just a Siddhartha who can be awake. It is not just a Dalai Lama who can know compassion. Part of the message of original blessing is that we are all blessed with the capacity to be awake, the capacity to experience powerful depth, to live with a deep wisdom and compassion. These words that speak of original blessing, that speak of our own possibilities and potential, these are the words that draw us to the spiritual life, the words that lead us to make changes in our lives, the words that inspire us to explore the depths of our own consciousness, we're not drawn to the spiritual life by words of censure and judgment that tell us over and over again of how hopeless and unworthy and imperfect we are. We're, most of us probably not drawn to the spiritual life by a vision of awakening which seems to demand in any way disconnection. We are not necessarily drawn to a practice of aesthetically subduing ourselves, no matter how much is promised, future promised, as a result of that sub subjugation. What most of us are drawn to is a vision of oneness, a vision of truth that embraces all life. What most of us are drawn to is a vision of awakening that will reveal to us 
how to heal the world that we live in with love and with compassion. A vision of awakening that will reveal to us how to find serenity amidst chaos, how to discover harmony amidst division, how to discover compassion amidst hatred, and how to come to know oneness amidst separation. This is the teaching of original blessing that most of us find ourselves responding to deeply. And yet even as we respond and somehow in our hearts know that to be true and know that to be our own possibilities, we can't help but wonder why it is in our spiritual journeys, why it is in our own lives, why we get so caught up in struggle and striving. Why do we get so caught up in judgment? Why do we so easily believe in imperfection, in impurity? Why do we so easily come to believe in the need that we must transcend ourselves in order to be awake? Why do we become so identified and go through so much pain then with our thoughts and our feelings and our minds? Why is it that we are so quick, quickly led to believe in our own imperfection and unworthiness and then in our need to become perfect. In fact, we might wonder if we are really so blessed, why is it at times that we end up feeling so miserable and feel so exiled from original blessing? The reasons for this kind of exile are fairly obvious to us, both outwardly and inwardly. Certainly we can't ignore the, the weight and the authority of the religious and the social conditioning that we inherit that makes a deep impression on us. Often the conditioning that we inherit through various messages that repeatedly tell us about our imperfections, even if it's only through presenting a model of perfection. We can't ignore the deep impressions that are made upon us by the expectations we're exposed to from the moment of our birth about how we should be, what it means to be acceptable, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be worthy. Even if we meet those expectations, even just through being presented with models of what it means to be good enough, to be right, to be lovable, to be spiritual, too often we carry within us in our lives an impaired sense of vision, a wounded sense of vision, an incomplete sense of vision that we come to believe in deeply. And this wounded or this impaired sense of vision and our belief in it is what leads us to endless struggle and striving, to focus always elsewhere, upon something else apart from now. It's what leads us to our endless attempts to modify and improve and alter who we are and our experience. And it's important to see the effects of this belief so that we can learn to disbelieve it. It's important to see the effects of it so that we don't get become such the center of it 
to see the effects of our struggling and striving in terms of busyness, in terms of how much self-denial and abuse and judgment is directed inwardly, and how all of that suffocates spaciousness. It's important for us to see the way that we absorb standards and expectations and values and create them and impose them upon ourselves and then attempt to become something, to become worthy, to become acceptable or to become free. And how willing we are through those creations and constructions to name and to label aspects of our own being as enemies and obstacles and opponents, and then struggle in our attempt to overcome and transcend them. Why do we do that? Why is that struggle existing? Because in our own hearts and minds, we have separated heaven from earth. We have separated the spiritual from the worldly. We have separated the worthy from the unworthy. And then we become consumed in a flight from something and a flight towards something. And this is our belief system. This is the belief system that conditions us to limitation. The result is that we are exiled from original blessing, and instead we become entangled in the knots of a distorted version of original sin. The history of this struggle is not so hard for us to trace. It's not even sometimes so difficult to see this struggle happening on a moment-to-moment level. It is a little more difficult to step out of the struggle. It's a little more difficult to step out of our belief systems. But I must say that letting go is a far easier task in our lives than becoming perfect. (laughs) And one might think of that in the midst of struggle. Our belief systems will always define our worlds. Our belief systems will always define our vision of ourselves. And there is no belief system that is not constructed and conditioned. There is no belief system that is not empty of substantiality. How do we learn? Do we even need to learn how? How do we let go deeply and fully of the beliefs that propel us into struggle? Sometimes the letting go may seem to result only in more struggle and judgment. Sometimes we're afraid to give up the struggle because we're afraid we'll sink into passivity and even painful and uncomfortable, at least familiar and known to us. I don't feel that to engage in another struggle is a way to engage in another struggle to let go of my belief systems so that I won't have any belief systems, to engage in another struggle to let go of striving, because that's just more striving. 
sometimes there really does need to be really quite a revolution in the consciousness. There needs to be actually a very radically different way of seeing, a very different way of being with ourselves. It is not as if there is yet another prescription, another formula, another kind of graduated solution that we can follow and check off as we engage in it. If we see that belief is the source of struggle, just as belief is the source of division and separation, then instead of dwelling so lengthily and so strongly upon our belief systems and all that is engaged in them, perhaps it would be helpful for us to use the power of that energy to reflect a little bit upon vision. Just to ask ourselves, just to open a little bit to the possibility that all of these images and all of these judgments and all of these labels that plague us are in no way a true description of who we are. And if we don't believe in them, what happens to them? If we don't struggle with them in any way or dwell upon them, what happens to them? Can we reflect or just open to the possibility, just even the slightest possibility, that it may indeed be possible for us to be awake, to live as fully compassionate, clear, wise human beings, that it is possible for us actually to be awake, that we can actually reflect upon that and hear not just empty words and not just an empty echo, but that it might possibly awaken within us some glimmer of trust, some glimmer of faith, is very different than belief, some glimmer of insight that maybe we don't actually need to do anything with these beliefs. Maybe we don't actually need to do anything with them. It is like a person who goes on a journey with lots of suitcases and they make their way very heavily towards the station and they struggle with the taxi and they struggle with the trolleys and and their carts, and they finally get onto the platform, and they're struggling with all these bags, and they get on the train, and they stand on the train still holding these bags. Someone could come and say, you know, you can put them down now. You don't actually have to hold them anymore. You don't actually have to hold on to those bags in order to be where you want to be. That you can just set them down. Perhaps that seems too simple. It's not. It is not too simple. And it's not too hard. It's just what is. Just to set them down. To withdraw, to no longer believe, to no longer invest in any description. What happens to the world, what happens to ourselves. 
there is revealed to us a remarkable openness, a remarkable sense of wonder and freshness and simplicity. See what happens when you just put down the descriptions. As we reflect upon vision, we may begin to see the emptiness, the transparency of this flow of concepts and beliefs that passes through us. And this is the window and the door to awakening. Just to see the emptiness of that flow, to see, to welcome, to learn, And then we begin to understand that when we're not struggling, how much greatness of silence, what great stillness is born. Not born, but what great stillness is revealed to us. When we let go of the descriptions, we begin to see how all of this name and form is conditioned and constructed, and that it is empty of self. It is empty of substantiality. And we see how much openness and vastness of consciousness is revealed to us when we are not isolating and not discriminating and not separating one thing from another. In this path, pain and suffering and striving, they are not stepping stones to liberation. Transcendence is not the key to being awake. Meditation is not a stepping stone to somewhere else, to some more enlightened destination. All that meditation does is it brings us closer to who and where we are. And that is where there is a possibility of awakening. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with openness. We have just a couple of minutes quietly together, please. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on April 11, 1991. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.